Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. I want to live in a world where if the president says something that is critical of a journalist or anyone, everybody cares. Because if the president is the president, whoever it is, he or she may be. But he now, I, the only conclusion I can reach is that it's just noise so that nobody even cares anymore. That's Jake Tapper. He's the host of the CNN shows The Lead and State of the Union. In addition to his on-air work, Jake is a prolific writer. His 2012 book, The Outpost, is a wrenchingly detailed account of a devastating battle in Afghanistan. It's recently been adapted into an acclaimed feature film of the same name. Jake and I discuss the almost two-decade conflict in Afghanistan, the importance of combative interviews, and his criticism of New York Governor Andrew Cuomo's COVID-19 response. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Let's get to your questions. This question comes in an email from Lane, who writes, Dear Preet, first, I love your podcast. Thanks, Lane. Secondly, I'm concerned that Trump signaled yesterday regarding Jelaine Maxwell that his comment that he, quote, wishes her well, end quote, was code for, don't reveal anything and I will pardon you. Is that possible? It would be so disgusting if true. Is there any way to prevent it, i.e. take the case to the states of New York and or Florida where Trump does not have pardon power? Thanks so much. I would really appreciate your insight. Best regards, Lane. Well, I think your instinct is exactly right on. And lots of people would join you in assessing that that's exactly what Trump was doing. I just wish her well, frankly. Uh, I've met her numerous times over the years, especially since I lived in Palm Beach. And I guess they lived in Palm Beach. Uh, but I wish her well that he was sending a message, as he's done in the past with respect to other cases, that if you keep your mouth shut and take care of yourself and take care of me, then maybe there'll be some benefit for you in the future. You'll recall he did sort of that thing with Roger Stone. He tweeted openly during the pendency of the Roger Stone case that Stone was being, I don't have the exact words in front of me, was being uh, brave and courageous by keeping his mouth shut and not spilling the beans. Roger Stone himself seemed to acknowledge that he had an understanding of what might happen to him if he didn't, in his words, turn on the president, which he did not. So this is another example of Donald Trump sort of thumbing his nose at how the operation of justice should unfold in a normal traditional matter where norms are observed because he doesn't observe them. Because even for Donald Trump, it's a little odd to be 
taking time at the presidential podium to wish well someone who has been charged with something as serious as the Southern District of New York has charged her with, essentially the sex trafficking of young girls. Some people have pointed out that comes in stark contrast to the kinds of public statements he's made about other people. It took a long time for Donald Trump in the same week to make any acknowledgement at all about the passing of civil rights hero John Lewis. And he didn't even bother to go pay his own respects. At the same time, with respect to Jelaine Maxwell, saying he wishes her well, which I think further supports the theory that he's trying to be nice to her and nice about her in the hopes that if she does have information that's damaging to the president or his associates, that she'll keep that to herself. Now, one interesting issue on the timing is this. The Maxwell case has just begun. There won't be a trial at any point in the near future. And it is possible that Trump will be out of office by the time there is a conclusion to that case. So depending on what the circumstances are, if there is some possibility that Maxwell has damaging information to the president or associates of his, if he ends up leaving office by January 20th of next year, he loses the ability to pardon her. So that'll be an interesting thing to watch. I also think that as controversial as some of his prior pardons and commutations have been, I think really any kind of clemency, especially in advance of a conviction for Jelaine Maxwell, would really top all of those in terms of controversy and criticism and negativity. Trump himself has not made the allegation with respect to Maxwell that she has been treated unfairly, like he did with Roger Stone and Michael Flynn. And the charges are a lot more serious than the charges in those other cases. So I never say that Donald Trump is above anything, and he's proven himself not to be. But I think any kind of clemency for Jelaine Maxwell, given the charges, and if they're able to be proved, would be a bridge too far. As for whether the states of New York and Florida could do something about it, I, I don't know what investigations are taking place in those states. I don't know what evidence they have. I don't know what the statute of limitations issues are in those states. I haven't researched it. But yes, you're correct that if state prosecutors decided to bring a case against Jelaine Maxwell and successfully prosecuted her for some crimes, those would not be pardonable or commutable by President Trump. You saw an effort to do that that has not been fully successful on the part of Cy Vance with respect to Paul Manafort. So we'll have to see. This question comes in an email from Matt, who writes, Hey, Preet, love the show and Cafe Insider as well. I'm a law student from Oregon, currently interning for the DOJ prior to my remote 3L year. I've been surprised to see that AUSAs do a lot of civil work, particularly in immigration. What are the roles of the U.S. attorneys for the various districts in civil matters? And do civil AUSAs ever transition to the criminal side and vice versa? Thanks, Matt Fouts. Well, Matt, I'm glad you asked the question because it gives me an opportunity to brag about one of the most well-kept secrets at the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District and at many U.S. Attorney's Offices and within the Department of Justice. So my office had about, depending on the time, 220 assistant U.S. attorneys. And while a lot of the attention gets focused on the criminal prosecutions and all the criminal cases, there were about 165 criminal AUSAs and about 55 civil AUSAs. So that's a pretty large group of folks, one of the biggest civil divisions in the country. And they do a lot of amazing, impressive work. And one of the great pleasures of being the U.S. attorney having served as a line assistant in the criminal division, is I got to know the men and women on the civil side and incredibly impressed by their work, their contributions, and I'll mention a few of them. So on the affirmative side, the civil division does investigations and brings cases in the area of civil rights. We pursued a lot of cases with respect to enforcement of the Americans with Disabilities Act. In fact, I think this week marks the 30th anniversary of the passage of that act. And I remember very well that on the 20th anniversary of the passage of that act, we undertook a very big program to make sure that restaurants in New York within the district were complying with the ADA. 
You may have heard about or read about our civil rights work with respect to Rikers Island, a civil case that we brought, and also criminal cases we brought against correction officers who violated the civil rights and caused the deaths of inmates at Rikers Island. Those cases, the criminal cases, were done jointly by our civil division and our criminal division, holding those people accountable and bringing justice to the families of the victims. We also commenced an investigation, a very massive one, of conditions of housing run by the New York City Housing Authority, which ended up resulting in a very huge settlement with the city. And then also something I'm very proud of, at least in our office, we started to do affirmative civil cases relating to financial institutions and fraud at financial institutions, where criminal cases did not seem to be appropriate or were not going to be possible to bring. We did those kinds of things as well. And then on the defensive side, there are civil division lawyers who represent agencies of the government when they are sued by individuals or, or other organizations. They're deeply involved in Freedom of Information Act litigation. They're deeply involved in national security law. So there are a million things that the civil division folks do, which people should be proud of, and I wish it got more attention. And so as you think about the kind of work you want to do in the future, civil division is a great opportunity. As to your question, do AUSAs ever transition to the criminal side and vice versa? Yeah, it happens from time to time. There have been people who have spent a number of years in the civil division, want to try something different, got a taste for it perhaps when they were doing criminal trials in the civil rights area. And so they move over to the criminal side. Doesn't happen so frequently in the other direction for some reason. But thanks for your question. This question comes in a tweet from Ben Klaus, whose handle is at Loose Rooster. Good name. And this is a question in reference to some of the Bill Barr testimony from this week about the consequences of removing Jeff Berman from the SDNY. And Loose Rooster tweets, at Preet Bharara, is it true that, quote, and this is a quote from Bill Barr, anybody familiar with the DOJ knows that removing the component head isn't going to have any effect on any pending investigation? Close quote. Hashtag ask Preet. Well, so that's an interesting question. A couple of other people have asked it, including a journalist, when they heard the testimony. I actually tend to agree with Bill Barr in ordinary circumstances and during ordinary times. And I'll tell you why I give that caveat in a moment. I've always found it interesting that some people have the view that just because you remove the United States attorney or you remove a DA or remove the head of the civil division or the criminal division at Maine Justice, that some sensitive investigation that has been pursued by line assistance for a long period of time, or perhaps even a prosecution that's underway, charges already having been brought, that somehow the removal of the head of the office is going to cause that case to evaporate. It doesn't work that way. You know, deadlines get set. Cases have their own dynamic and their own momentum. And judges expect proceedings to continue apace. Because remember, it's not, it's not the U.S. attorney who's doing the cases. I wasn't the one going to the banks and asking them for their documents. I wasn't the one who was on the street doing interviews or going to the grand jury. I presided over the office and led the office. But it's line agents and line prosecutors who work together in tandem to develop the cases. The understanding is, you know, for example, when I started on August 13, 2009, I inherited thousands of cases. They didn't stop. I didn't call an all hands meeting and say, okay, uh, tell me about the 100 cases that we're working on that are very important. And let me think about which 35 cases I'm going to end and close because I feel like it. It's not how it works. It's not how a professionally run office works. The only political appointee is the person at the top, but everyone else, the staff, the lawyers are career public servants some of whom have been there for a very, very long time. So they have their own momentum, they have their own energy, they have their own timeline. Which is why, by the way, when there was this whole controversy about the firing of Jim Comey, people legitimately said, well, I don't know what that was going to get the president. Because again, it's a component head who doesn't necessarily launch the investigations or advance the investigations, just oversees the investigations. 
And a replacement for Jim Comey would reasonably continue the investigations that were going on. Now, the reason I give the caveat is we're not necessarily in normal times. And we have seen, by the way, with respect to the work of Bob Mueller, that a change in leadership, the change in who is overseeing those cases and responsible for those cases, has worked a substantial change in how those cases move forward. In both the case of Roger Stone and the case of Michael Flynn, cases brought by the Mueller team have been undone in significant ways because Bob Mueller is no longer in charge of those cases. They've gone to the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia. And Bill Barr has been able to reassert his control and command over those cases because there's no longer a special counsel to contend with. So in the abstract, as a general matter, in professional offices, cases continue in weird, rare circumstances, some of which we're seeing now, there's an argument that maybe they won't. If implicit in your question is what's going to go on at SDNY, I don't have a concern that the removal of Jeff Berman will cause legitimate, good faith investigations to come to an end or cases to come to an end. And a very large reason for that is that Jeff Berman stood firm and acquiesced in the firing only after it was clear that his deputy, Audrey Strauss, would be taking over the office. So there's continuity. I expect those cases to continue. I expect if someone at Maine Justice like Bill Barr tries to interfere, tries to influence cases in an illegitimate and bad faith way, that that will be met with substantial resistance and that the public might even find out about it. So good question. Thanks for asking it. Stay tuned. There's more coming up right after this. Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise, an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab, tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. Host Mike Townsend, Charles Schwab's Managing Director for Legislative and Regulatory Affairs, takes a nonpartisan look at the stories that matter most to investors. He explores topics like policy initiatives for retirement savings, taxes, and trade, inflation fears, the Federal Reserve, and how regulatory developments can affect companies, sectors, and even the entire market. In every episode, Mike and his guests offer their perspectives on how policy changes could affect what you do with your portfolio. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash Washington Wise or wherever you listen. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your first website look pretty great too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code tuned.
Jake Tapper's 2012 book, The Outpost, about the war in Afghanistan, was recently adapted into a powerful film, which you should all see. He joins me today to reflect on the conflict and talk through the other pressing political issues on his radar, from COVID-19 revisionism to his exhaustion with President Trump's Twitter attacks. Jake Tapper, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. It's been a long time. I've been wanting to have you on for a long time. I feel like it's a little bit of a, of a turning of the tables. Usually, you're the one asking me questions. Now I get to ask you questions. Are, are you ready for that? <laughs> sure. I guess. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> you seem totally unintimidated, which is the correct way to be. So the one thing is, you know, we have guests on the show, and I feel like I know some of them pretty well, and I've known you for a long time and followed you for a long time, and we've gotten to know each other. But then when I have someone on the show, I get a, a bundle of research and I learn new things about them. So I guess I, guess I have what you can call a dossier, Jake, uh-huh. on you. Okay. And uh, see, now you're starting to worry a little bit. Well, let's hope this one, you know, proves to be reliable. Um, well, you, I'm giving you a, a chance to comment. Um, okay. One thing that's interesting about you, you have a lot of talents, obviously journalistic talent, writing talent, but you also have drawing talent. And you show that obviously every week in the state of the cartoonian. And I want to talk about that a little bit. But what I didn't realize is you have been drawing cartoons for a long time. And once upon a time, tell me if I'm correct or not, your penchant for drawing got you suspended from school. Well, it's a, uh, I think I didn't get suspended per se. Um, per se. When someone says I didn't get suspended per se, well, that's an interesting the teacher, they didn't say so what had happened. I have talked about this before publicly, but my friends and I were, you know, mischief makers, I think is a nice way to put it. And uh, we concocted a way to come up with a Mad Magazine style fold in in the back of the yearbook. Uh, I drew it and designed it. Um, and then a bunch of my co-conspirators got it in the yearbook and, you know, faked a payment for it and all that stuff. You know, it was probably like $120 for a full page ad or something like that. And, um, when you folded it in, it was, uh, it formed a, a, a visual of, uh, a particular appendage of the, of the male, um, male anatomy. And nose, said, the nose. Uh, and it said, uh, <laughs> the and, ear? There, and there was an, there was an instruction for readers and it said for all the BS, <laughs> eat, eat this. That's what it's for all the BS, eat this. So it was, I don't know what's wrong with saying the, eat, eat a nose. Yeah. I don't know why that's a problem. Yeah. One would hope that that wouldn't be. Um, are you less mischievous today? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, and I, you know, they, the teachers found out about it, uh, the day of graduation. That's, that's when they found out. So we weren't suspended because there was nothing to suspend us from, but we did get in trouble. We did not get our diplomas uh, that day with everybody else. We marched in graduation, but we just got empty Naugahyde folders. And we um, we had to do community service and issue an apology. It was a whole, it was a whole thing. Um, and I would not recommend it. And now the yearbooks of that high school, I'm told, are, uh, of my alma mater are, are um, you know, assiduously uh, checked every year by the faculty advisors of the, of the school. It was a, it was a, you know, it was a scandal and it's kind of embarrassing when you think about it. I didn't really have much to be rebelling about, but. Do you regret it? If you could do it over again, you would do it again. It's a nice, it's a funny story. No? I mean, you know, I, I'm not, I'm 51 now. I'm not 18. So <laughs> I, I, w- I, you know, if my 51 year old brain was in that 18 year old body, would I do it again? Eh, it wasn't worth it. But, you know, I, I wasn't 51 at the time. I was, you know, felt that I had a lot to rebel about and. I hated authority and this and that. And now that, that quality ended up serving me fine, uh, suspicion and distrust of authority. But, but, uh, 
probably, hopefully, I channel it in a more constructive way today. I think that's probably right. So I want to talk about something that I know that you're proud of and that a lot of people are talking about, and that is the movie, The Outpost, based on a book that you wrote some years ago. Congratulations on the success. I've watched it. It's really, I mean, it's really compelling. It's really, really well done. Directed by Rod Lurie. Um, are you are you pleased with how it came out? I am. I think Rod did a really good job. Rod uh, has done a lot of very political movies, um, The Contender, and has very strong political opinions. And those are not in the movie, which which I was very happy about because the book is is not political either. The book is just about these men and women in this one location and their families and what they what they went through because we and our leaders sent them there and we sent them as we did. And, um, you know, you can apply whatever politics on that you want. You can take whatever lesson you want to learn from it. But I think Rod did those men and women a, a real service by having the movie hue so closely to the facts. There are, you know, a few liberties taken here and there, but generally speaking, it is true. And by immersing the audience, watching the film in Combat Outpost Keating and what it was like uh, in a way that I don't think has been done as effectively as as Rod does it um, since Steven Spielberg at the beginning of Saving Private Ryan, when you feel like you're actually storming the beaches of, you know, of Normandy. Is everybody? Yes, sir. Okay. Look, we're making great progress here in Camdash. We still got a lot of work to do. Our outpost, still a target of insurgents, in case you hadn't noticed. Mm, so how do we do our jobs and stay safe? We need to keep a good relationship with the locals. Hmm? Respect keeps us safe. So I, I just think, yeah, I'm, I'm really... I'm very pleased. I think Rod did a great job. The cast and crew did an amazing job. As these things go, I mean, you know, would I change one or two things here and there? Sure. But like, given all the things that could go wrong with taking a true book and making it a film, uh, I'm, I feel really lucky. One of the unfortunate things about the pandemic, and there's so many of them, is that the movie is not going to be able to be appreciated for most people on a big screen. And, and this is the kind of film that I think you want to see on a big screen. So that's unfortunate. I think that's true. But once it's safe, once it's safe again, I imagine, well, I have no idea, but I mean, hope, you know, perhaps there would be a re-release in studios and in, in theaters. Uh, I, I don't, I don't know, but if you have a decent TV. No, it's pretty uh, good. I tried, I tried to use it as an excuse to get a 96 inch television. My wife was like, no, <laughs> <laughs> not, not even for Tapper. <laughs> I want to ask you about Afghanistan, simple, non-complex subject by way of background. You said something that I thought was interesting and I, I don't want you to explain what you meant. You said, we haven't fought a 19-year war. We fought a one-year war 19 times. What do you mean by that? Well, I, there's just so little institutional memory. You know, so I went out to, I set out to write a book about the history of this outpost, Combat Outpost Keating. And people, you know, in, in 2009 had no idea why their observation post was named, after, you know, Fritchie. And in fact, you know, when the army did its report on its after action report after the big battle, they didn't even refer to observation post Fritchie. They didn't even pronounce it correctly. I think they called it like Fr Fritch or something like that. People just don't even know. 
there's no, I mean, that, that those are small little details, like how to pronounce the name of your observation post, but they, you know, they don't know, there just isn't the history of, well, this guy in the Valley is reliable and this person isn't, and this guy can be helped. And this is what, I mean, and I don't blame them. I don't blame the soldiers. It's just this, it's the, the way that the situation is set up that the army has a certain mindset and the mindset is we can do whatever you tell us to do, tell us what to do and we'll do it, which is great and very admirable. But it also means that it's difficult to uh, acknowledge mistakes. It's difficult to uh, step away from decisions that were made that were bad because the environment changed. In 2006, when they set up the outpost, combat outpost Keating, the situation in Afghanistan and in that valley was very different than it was in 2008, 2009. Uh, but there's just a reluctance to shut things down. And that's what I mean. It's just, it's not, it's as if it isn't one coherent whole for the whole time. It's just ad hoc decision-making by whoever is in charge any given year. And I just think that that leads to a lot of myopic vision and, and short-term decisions and this is how it operates. And again, I'm not criticizing the men and women who, who do this, but just as a, as a person who, you know, became an expert on this one combat outpost. Um, I mean, I think you have to ask why would I be like the world authority on combat outpost Keating? I've never, I've never been there. It was destroyed a couple of days after I heard about it for the first time. I mean, there should be a way to for somebody to have more institutional knowledge about what works and what doesn't work. Can you describe Combat Outpost Keating? And there's this early scene in the movie that sort of makes you understand why it's a really dangerous place as the soldiers there look up at the mountains. Well, and that's based on real, you know, that's based on a real experience. So Combat Outpost Keating was at the bottom of three steep mountains, really steep mountains. Also, not in the movie, but in real life, uh, right next to two rivers as well. And it was about 14 miles from the border with Pakistan, a very porous border where a lot of bad guys live. And so it was just about as dangerous a place as there was because the enemy had the high ground. And the scene in the, in the book where they, uh, I mean, sorry, the scene in the film where they land at night and specifically on a night where there's very little moon shining a light on anything. And that's, that is how the men and women would, would go into the outpost at night and they would, um, you know, the next morning they'd get up and they'd see this stunningly horrifying image of, you know, this panoramic view of like, oh my God, we're surrounded by the high ground, which is obviously the worst thing you want if you're in a military situation because your enemy has all of the advantages and you have none. Right. So why does one build an outpost in a valley like that? Well, and this this is one of the things that when I set out to write the book, uh, I, I that was the big mystery because everybody in 2009 was like, we don't know why this outpost was built here. And so I went to find out why. And the answer is, uh, in 2006, George W. Bush had changed the mission in Afghanistan. It was no longer uh, just going after uh, the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. It was about building the nation of Afghanistan. And... The way that they were doing that was setting up these little outposts all over northeastern Afghanistan at that point. Um, Colonel, now General, now retired General Nicholson is the one who put a bunch of these little outposts all over. And why were they little? They were little because most of the troops that were deployed were in Iraq, uh, not Afghanistan. So they had to be small little camps. 
And then why were they at the bottom of the mountain? Well, because in that part of Afghanistan, you're either at the top of the mountain or you're the bottom of the mountain because it's mountainous. And the only way to get to the camp and to resupply the camp was by road. Because once again, almost all the helicopters were in Iraq, not Afghanistan. So you have you know big decisions being made by the president, George W. Bush, and then later Barack Obama, uh, and big um, uh, decisions being made by the secretaries of defense, whether Rumsfeld or Gates or whomever, about what's a priority, what's not a priority, where, where do we send our troops, where do we send our helicopters? And that ends up meaning this outpost is small and it has to be by the road. And that's, that's why. So why did you choose to write this book and the time you did? It's actually kind of a weird story. Um, my son was born October 2nd, 2009. And the outpost was attacked October 3rd, 2009. And some point during that week in that haze of, you know, my wife just having given birth to our second child, our first son, first and only son in the recovery room at the hospital with her. There was some poignant moment where I was holding my son and watching the news and hearing about eight other sons taken from this earth at the same time that I had just gotten mine. And there was just something poignant in that moment. And I wanted to know who these men were. I wanted to know why they were at this incredibly indefensible place. And I kind of just waited for somebody in the media to investigate it. And they never did. So I did. And that's how it happened. And the only reason, like, I kind of even tell the story, other than the fact that it's true, is because... I initially, you know, confronted a lot of skeptical troops that wanted to know why I cared, why I wanted to tell the story. And at one point, one of them, I remember a guy who ran a kill team named Cricket Cunningham. Cricket Cunningham uh, was just very skeptical. Why do you want to do this? And I told him that story that I just told you. And, uh, you know, it's God's honest truth. It's what happened. And uh, that was kind of the moment that I realized it. <laughs> and, uh, and it, you know, it won a convert. Cricket cooperated with the book. So it ended up becoming, you know, this obsession and this mission for me. So on October 3rd of 2009, to give folks a sense, am I right that there were only about 50 some odd soldiers at combat outpost Keating when they were attacked by the Taliban? 53. Yeah. 53. There were some, there were 53 U.S. troops, two Latvian troops as part of the coalition, and then some Afghan troops. But the Afghan troops were worthless. They ran away. The Latvian troops were great. They helped out. But it was basically this, these 53 troops in the bottom of the valley against somewhere between 300 and 400 insurgents. What was the prospect of survival for the soldiers in that camp? How precarious was it for them? It's amazing that any of them made it out, to be honest. They didn't have air support uh, close by. By the time air support got there, the insurgents had set up in such a way that they were firing upon the helicopters. It's called enemy in the wire. They got in the camp. They were in the camp walking around as it, as it is depicted in the film. I mean, they, it is literally amazing that any of them survived, much less that 45 of them survived as a, you know, of the 53. But it was the deadliest day for the U.S. and Afghanistan that year. And it was... Uh, a remarkable, I mean, the only reason that they survived in addition to air support, which is, which was obviously huge, but it came, you know, relatively late. And the only reason they survived is because of the incredible courage shown 
by these men fighting for their survival. And every one of the guys who was killed that day uh, was killed doing something to help their fellow soldiers, their brothers, every single one of them, whether it was supplying, resupplying ammunition or trying to return fire, every single one of them died heroically. And um, it's just a remarkable story. And, um, you know, 45 survived, but a lot of them are still in, you know, bad shape. Yeah. And in fact, one of the things that struck me was how many people, both living and dead, received received honors from the military. And I, I think it's the case, and it says this in a caption in the movie, that it was the first time in 50 years that two medals of honor were awarded in the course of one battle. For living recipients, that's true. There was a time, the, the Black Hawk Down Mogadishu uh, incident, there were two medals of honor for that battle, but they were both awarded posthumously. This was the first time since Vietnam that two living troops from the same battle had been awarded the Medal of Honor. And it really is just a testament to how heroic everyone was. Um, and the truth of the matter is, there are any number of those guys who got who could have gotten the Medal of Honor based on the definition of what it's given for. When you, you know, know when you, you, you run, it's basically if you know that you could die, you are likely to die and you do something anyway. And Romache deserved it and Ty Carter deserved it. And there are a number of other guys who probably deserved it as well. When you talk to the people who survived, the soldiers who survived that attack, what's their mindset? How do they feel about the position they were put in? How do they feel about the military? How do they feel about the war effort? Well, there are 45 of them, right, who were there that day, uh, not to mention others who were, you know, at a lo local uh, forward operating base. Uh, and, you know, their opinions about everything run, run the gamut of uh, politics and uh, emotion. You know, I think that they are soldiers. And, you know, the, I mean, one of the amazing things about it is that after the outpost was attacked and the battle happened in October, they still had to serve out the rest of their tour. It's not like they got to go home. They had to still have to serve out the rest of their tour until May or June of 2010. So, I mean, I don't think there was a lot of time to process what they went through. Uh, a, a lot of them have survivor's guilt, which is a very real thing. Why did I make it and, and my buddies didn't? A lot of them... Uh, deal with it in different ways. Uh, there's a character in the movie, Ed Faulkner. You might remember him. He's at the beginning of the movie. Uh, he's smoking hash while on guard duty. And then he's one of the heroes when um, Josh Hart and Chris Griffin go on the mission to try to save the guys stuck in the, in the Humvee. Faulkner is the only one who makes it back. Griffin and Hart do not. Um, Faulkner was a real guy. He OD'd. He was discharged from the military and uh, because of his problems with drugs. And he, uh, he OD'd before the year anniversary of the attack. So, I mean, you know, that's the only one of those guys like that that I know that, uh, that has OD'd. Um, but a lot of the other guys are having, you know, a rough time, divorces, various levels of self-medication. Some of them are doing fine. I mean, I should say, I mean, some of them that I'm in touch with or, you know, seem to be thriving and uh, have or seem to be doing really, really well. But so it runs the gamut, really. But I mean, I've never really asked any of them, are you mad at the army? Are you mad at McChrystal, who was the general at the time, or Obama, who was the president at the time, or whoever? I'm. It, it, for me, it was just more about like, what happened to you? And then when I talk to them, how are you doing? Does any of it make you angry about the army and how they were treated and what position they were put in? It makes me angry. Yeah, it makes me very angry. It makes me angry. But one of the other things 
that I feel like is uh, I feel like a lot of this book is for me is was just opening my eyes about how decisions made in Washington end up having real world consequences to men and women, uh, whether it's just about going into a you know a particularly rough area of Afghanistan or not providing full protection. Yeah, it makes me very angry now that I know a lot of these uh, men and women and their families. It makes me, you know, I know these kids that won't, don't have dads. It, it does. It, But it's not like I'm angry at Bush or Obama or it's just more like I'm kind of it kind of makes me angry at just all of it. Just the United States of America, not mad at, at America, but just like the way that our decisions are made about putting these very brave people in harm's way, like the the entire system of it, of whether it's members of the House or Senate voting on these missions or the Pentagon uh, and how they make decisions, presidents, how they make decisions. Uh, Hamid Karzai, who was the president of Afghanistan at the time and how he made decisions, just the whole thing, the public, the media, all of it. It just makes me feel like none of us are worthy of what these men and women are willing to do for us. Um, and, you know, and, and most of us don't even pay attention. And I certainly include myself in that up until, you know, I was kind of radicalized by watching what happened with uh, Combat Outpost Keating. I was, even though I was a White House reporter for ABC News, uh, I wouldn't say like I was firmly paying attention to every single development in Afghanistan or Iraq. Um, so, and I'm, you know, but more than angry, really, um, Preet, it makes me just sad. Yeah. And then just a couple of days after the battle of October 3rd, 2009, as you mentioned already, we blew the whole place up, raised it to the ground. Yep. Because there was no point. There was no point. Look, the guys who came in, uh, then Colonel, now General Randy George, and then Lieutenant Colonel, uh, now Colonel uh, Brad Brown, they came into their command wanting to close down Cop Keating and a number of the other outposts that had been set up in 2006. They had no strategic purpose. Uh, it's what people in the military refer to as a, a self-licking ice cream cone, meaning it's only there to exist for itself. That's, it's, you know, that's all it accomplishes. They were not making any headway in convincing the locals to lay down their arms and not join the insurgency, even though there had been some achievements along those lines in maybe 2007 uh, under a different group and a different set of circumstances. So yeah, they blew it all up. And that's one of the one of the ways to look at the Afghanistan war, not that nothing's been accomplished in Afghanistan, of course stuff, of course many things have been accomplished, but but one of the ways to understand the Afghanistan war is to look at this one outpost and what had been done and why these men had been asked to die. And the truth of the matter is they weren't asked to die for nothing. They, they ended up dying for, them, for their brothers uh, and for survival. And that's not nothing. That's a lot. But are we worth uh, that sacrifice? Was the mission we sent them on worth that sacrifice? And I think that's, I think that's an, an open question. Another issue related to Afghanistan that makes a lot of people angry, I suspect, based on some things you've said, makes you angry also. It's been a few weeks now since we heard reports of the intelligence community believing that there were Russian bounties being placed on U.S. and other service members in Afghanistan. And I got to tell you, I, I don't hear a lot about that. It's one of those things that seems to have faded from, from the news. 
Why is that? How do you feel about that? And and what are your thoughts on the underlying story? Well, I did a I did a commentary uh, at the end of State of the Union about this um, earlier this week, and I mean I can understand why there haven't been many new developments in the journalism part of this because you know look the New York Times has done an amazing job reporting the story, uh, which other media outlets including CNN have have matched, which is you know there is this. Uh, the, you know, the U.S. intelligence got intercepts that suggested some payment from a GRU, which is the Russian military intelligence unit, a GRU account um, going to Taliban-linked accounts. And they think that that's part of a bounty. Um, but beyond beyond whether or not it was part of a, a bounty, it's just pretty much understood that the Russians are helping the Taliban uh, with money and arms. So it's almost, to be Frank, kind of beside the point whether or not this particular piece of intelligence is uh, 100% agreed upon within the intelligence community, which is which it is not. But the very fact that the Russians are helping the men who are trying to kill our service members and British service members is fairly undisputed in intelligence circles. So I, I, I have to be honest, I'm, I was stunned that the president did at least four interviews last week. And I didn't hear one question about any of this. Not even just like, have you made a determination on the intelligence? Or the larger point I just made, which is whether or not the bounty story is true, the Russians are helping the Taliban. Have you confronted Putin about this? Why haven't you confronted Putin about this, et cetera? Why have you, why would you invite Russia to be, to rejoin the G7, become the G8 again, knowing this? I can't understand it. Well, that's because people have to ask about person, woman, man, camera, TV. By the way, I have that memorized now. <laughs> yeah, so do I. <laughs> the, person, woman, I'm, man, camera, TV. But, but you know, look, I, the doctor who interviewed him wants to talk about COVID, fine. But there were other people in there who asked other questions. And look, Well, one of them is Chris Wallace. So I want to I I read back a, a tweet of yours. So Chris Wallace has been apparently suggesting that Joe Biden is uncomfortable coming on his show a competing Sunday morning show for a sit down. And then you you tweeted, quote, speaking back to this story, speaking of sit down, you, meaning Chris Wallace, had an interview with the president and you asked about mean tweets about you and not about intel reports about GRU bounties against U.S. and U.K. service members. Some people were surprised when you agreed to this interview to sit down with me. What are you going to ask? Especially because of some of the mean tweets that you've said about me. Mike Wallace wannabe, nasty and obnoxious. I will tell you, after that one, my son, Peter, who you've met, called and he said, nasty, no, obnoxious, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Any response from Chris Wallace? No, and I probably shouldn't have sent that tweet, but I I do get emotional about this. I do get angry about the cavalier way that politicians and people in the news media act about our troops. And I do, I, it upsets me. And that probably was emotion talking in that tweet. But I, but it did make me mad because, look, Chris asked a number of tough, fine questions against the president. It's not like that interview was comparable to other ones I could name that are <clears throat> ridiculous. Chris, did a, he did an interview. But he also did spend a great deal of time, relatively, talking about how the president thinks he's mean, thinks he's nasty, uh, and 
he spent a number, he spent time talking about how he's actually really tough and he was tough on Comey and he's tough on, and it's just like, this is one of the things we, we are people in the news media. And I'm certainly not immune to this. We're all so focused on ourselves. And it just really rubbed me the wrong way that nobody asked about this when we're talking about service members who have been killed. And there was specifically one IED attack that went on in 2019 where three Marines were killed. And the families of those Marines are, you know, they want answers. Is it true? Is that what happened? And there's no, we don't know if it's true or not, but it is being investigated by the military. And I just thought it was deserving of a question. And I just thought that the preening about so-and-so's afraid to go on my show, blah, blah. I mean, like, you know, I could do that every day about Trump. Trump Trump hasn't given me an interview since 2016. It's kind of stupid. I mean, politicians do interviews and it's based on a whole number of factors. And it's, it's not really the point. The point is, what are you doing when you get an opportunity like that? And I was just really upset that nobody, and if one of them had asked, I, I, would, I don't think I would have done the commentary at all. If just one of them had. And it's not to single out Chris. I mean, there are a number of people who did interviews with the president. Um, and it could have been any one of them. And it's just why. But what's the, what's the answer? I mean, you know, some of these people are not, you know, novice journalists, and it seems to be an important story. What, what is the reason why some things are not asked about? Do you have a theory? Is it incompetence? I don't know. And look, you could go, it's, it, again, it, it probably wasn't fair of me because you could go into any, any interview with a politician and find incredibly important subjects that the interviewer didn't ask about because of time. Like if I had an interview with the president right now, I certainly would ask about the Russia banner story, but I might spend most of the rest of the time just talking about COVID. And that would mean I wouldn't talk about poverty or income inequality or hunger in America or or races. I mean, it doesn't mean that I don't care about those issues. So it's not really super fair of me to have done that. But like I said, I get very emotional about the fact that I don't think we in the news media and politicians in general talk enough about the fact that we're still losing troops in these wars, one of which has been going on now for 19 years and almost. And I just, the fact that he was asking about uh, mean tweets against him and not about I mean, that just bothered me. And I, but I shouldn't, I normally don't say anything and I shouldn't have, but I did. And that, but that's the reason. That's the reason. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, Who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. So before we started taping the show, we were talking about other things relating to the president and how he sometimes lashes out at particular journalists. He lashed out at you and you posted a a tweet last night in which you said, honestly, the second worst thing about the president attacking me on Twitter after the sad statement made about his focus and how wrong he is about the pandemic is that I didn't even know what happened until three hours later. No one called, no one emailed. It's just noise. And I should point out that we're recording this on Monday, July 27th, and that happened on Sunday, July 26th. Do you want to, you want to comment on what it feels like to be attacked or criticized by the president and what it means that you didn't find out about it for three hours? 
Well, it's just so strange. He's attacked me a few times. Uh, he certainly doesn't go after me with the, the anger um, and vitriol that he goes after others, um, especially um, women of color who are in the White House uh, Correspondents Association who challenge him directly. Uh, he really seems to have a problem with them. But I mean, it was it was strange. It was I did a, an interview with the testing czar, Admiral Brett Giroir. And I think it's fair to say it was a fairly tough interview because I think it's the it's the biggest mystery going on. Why is the United States government, with all of its resources, not doing every single thing it can do to identify and isolate the virus, which would mean widespread surveillance testing all over the country? Harvard says it needs to be about three and a half to five million tests a day, as opposed to the current number, which is significantly up, but still only about 700, 800,000 a day. So, um, you know, you do one of these tough interviews and then always some, whether it's a Democrat or a Republican, then you interviewed some flunky association or Twitter feed or whatever will try to frame it the best way they can. And in this case, some, I never even heard of this Twitter feed, TV news HQ or something like that had some dishonest framing about Giroir correcting me. It, it was just stupid. And I didn't care. But then I just, you know, I was just lying in bed at about 1030 and just surfing uh, Twitter. And I'm online all the time. I mean, I have my phone next to me all the time and emails all the time. So I'm not like disconnected from the world. I should be more. I wish I could be more. But I just couldn't believe it. I All of a sudden, I'm like, oh, my God, wait, the president retweeted that kind of dishonest framing tweet and attack CNN, fake news, blah, 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 whatever it was. And first of all, to be attacked, it, it doesn't even matter. It just comes with the territory and, and uh, whatever. It's, it's fine. They pay us, you know, we get attacked by the president and by plenty of other people too. I just thought it was strange that no one told me. Literally no, like I had no idea. No one retweeted it to me. Nobody texted me. Nobody emailed me. You know, it's just like during primetime Sunday night. People are awake. People saw it. Nobody cared. That's the thing. I want to live in a world where if the president of the United States attacks a journalist, people care. Oh, what is he saying? Is he behaving indecently? Is the reporter wrong? It, whatever. Well, that's interesting. I didn't, I didn't know that you were going in that direction. I thought that part of what you were about to say was, you know, it's, maybe it's not terrible to live in a world in which, uh, you know, an irresponsible president who attacks people by name, given the bully pulpit he has, that it's kind of a nice thing that after three and a half, four years, people pay that not so much attention and it makes life more livable. Well, I think both are true. I mean, my point is that like, theoretically, I want to live in a world where if the president says something that is critical of a journalist or anyone, everybody cares because if the president is the president, whoever it is, he or she may be. But he now, I, the only conclusion I can reach is that it's just noise so that nobody even cares anymore. Like if you had told me 10 years ago, 20 years ago, there's going to be a point where we have a president who attacks you and nobody cares. Nobody, I don't even think anybody's written a story about it on like, and you know, the bar for some of the media organizations writing story. I mean, people have written stories about me unfollowing somebody on Twitter. So, so <laughs> it doesn't have to be particularly important. Literally they have. So it doesn't have to be particularly important. I haven't even seen, and if anybody did that, maybe that will change by the time uh, I get off the phone with you today. But, but I, I mean, it just, it's so weird 
that his criticism is now so common and his anger and grievance is just, you know, like the hum of a radiator that you're just used to that doesn't even bother you anymore. You can sleep right through it. I, I just find it remarkable. That, I mean, I, I'm obviously alarmed primarily by the fact that the president is not doing everything he can, <clears throat> according to health experts, to identify and isolate the virus. And that's the most important thing about his tweet is that he's wrong. Like, yes, testing is up, but it's not where it needs to be. And I did a whole Twitter th- thread about that. But then my second note was like, man, I can't believe it. I mean, I hear about it if people are mad at me all the time. Oh, so-and-so won't do an interview with you because he's mad about the last interview. Or, I mean, I'm, I'm fairly well-behaved, so I don't hear about things like this too often. But, I mean, in my personal life. But, I mean, this was just, I mean, don't you think it's just bizarre that the president would attack me and I wouldn't even hear about it for three hours? I'm wondering if this has something to do with other things that are going on. The, the fact that, to a greater degree, is the president becoming irrelevant? Is he becoming an aside? Is he less capable of commanding attention? Are people tuning him out? And it's interesting what you said before, there's two sides to the coin to each of those things, right? So on the one hand, when the president attacks a particular journalist like you, or when the president makes some sort of racist remark, or he says something else that sounds like we're slouching towards fascism, on the one hand, maybe it's a good thing that people are sort of ignoring him and even people in his own government are not paying attention and are not going to carry out his orders and his wishes. On the other hand, are we just becoming too used to it which is itself a huge problem, right? That you have a president saying these things, forget about the insults towards particular journalists, but other things that are much more important, no disrespect, that people are just sort of ignoring them, right? You know, you're, you're right. I mean, and that might be the other part of this, which is, let, let me say, I do not think it is important that President Trump attack me at all. I think it is stupid and a trifle, like that, you know, that kind of thing. I don't think it's an important issue. COVID-19 is an important issue. Uh, people... Um, being killed uh, in in protests or what's going on in cities like Portland or Austin or Chicago, whatever, those are important issues. Uh, And maybe that is the reason why nobody cares about him saying fake news anymore or whatever. I mean, maybe just the fact that obviously I'm right about the fact that testing is not where it needs to be and he's so obviously wrong that nobody even pays any attention to it. Or maybe the fact that I remember a year or two ago listening to a, a disagreement between two people. They were talking about whether President Trump was the worst president in the history of the United States. And one of the points, I, I was just listening, I was not participating in this conversation, but one of the arguments being made was, no, because his decisions hadn't really cost lives in the way that previous presidents, whether you want to, I mean, there's any ho- a whole host of presidents that you could talk about, whose decisions or inactions or proclivity for war or whatever cost tens, if not hundreds of thousands of lives. But now, you know, his decision-making has resulted in a body count uh, in terms of whether you want to give him credit for people love to say, oh, it it would have been 2 million. The death toll would have been 2 million. And um, there was projections. Yes, that death toll is if we had done absolutely nothing, there would have been 2 million. And now, uh, we have done what health experts say is not enough, and the death toll is right now, as of this moment, 145,000 or something like that. So, I mean, maybe now the fact that, like, there is an obvious direct line from President Trump's decision-making and results that have cost people their lives. Some of those decisions, by the way, 
good ones in terms of uh, getting ventilators up to speed, although it's unclear what the medical community thinks about ventilators right now when it comes to COVID, but some good decisions. Uh, and then some not so great decisions when it comes to wearing a mask and and uh, and the testing inadequacies. So maybe that's part of it too. Do you think Dr. Fauci is deserving of criticism? I think anybody can be deserving of criticism. If people want to criticize him, I mean, I'm not his protector. Um, I think that he has done everything he could based on the scientific knowledge at the time to try to save lives while also maintaining his um, standing in the government and being able to push for things to be done. So, I mean, I, I see it that way. But, you know, sure, some of the things he said, which were, you know, things that everybody was saying at the beginning in terms of masks don't really make a difference or whatever, were, you know, proved to be wrong. But as I think generally he's, he's, I don't have any question in my mind that he's a force for good and been trying to save lives. Do you disagree? No, I, I don't. I, what I find upsetting in case after case is the taking of somebody who is widely believed to be good intentioned and acting in good faith in a nonpartisan way in their field. And then when they disagree with the president or make the president look bad in any particular way, they get swift boated. And I, I often put together these two men who are not alike in many ways, except for the ways in which I described, and they are Robert Mueller and Anthony Fauci, whose reputations were as sterling as you could have in their relative fields in the country, in the world, in fact. And then they committed the crime of differing with the president a little bit. And then criticism is one thing, but character assassination and the attacks that we've seen on both of those men, most recently, most recently Dr. Fauci, that's very disturbing to me. I think that's a different. Well, there's, and there's also um, a difference between criticism and smearing, right? I mean, the the White House, uh, different officials in the White House, ranging from Navarro to Scavino to whoever put together the Oppo file of quotes of Fauci's, some of which were early based on knowledge, you know, scientific consensus that changed, some of which were completely out of context but ultimately a, a sheet that was put together to try to discredit him. I mean, that's just nuts. Of course, people are not, no one's above criticism, no one. But I mean, having a White House apparatus trying to smear him. Their own then, guy, you know, <laughs> he's their own guy. That's a- yeah, I mean, you know, and it's, but this is where we are. I mean, we are in a place where, you know, Dan Scavino, who's a White House deputy chief of staff, posts a cartoon from this like fringe cartoonist, Ben Garrison, on his Facebook page, attacking Fauci as like a leaker or something. I don't, I didn't even fully understand it. But then you had the whole QAnon thing. I mean, there's just, I've never seen, I mean, we, we you, I think we were talking about the Overton window earlier um, before we started taping and like the, the just like how, how much things change, how much acceptable conversation changes. And the Overton window of just, batshit crazy conspiracy theories just becoming mainstream is has been remarkable in the last three or four years. Sinclair Television had some insane special that they were about to <laughs> right. run where they basically, it was a theory that Fauci had helped create the coronavirus. <laughs> right. um, and ultimately, I think they've postponed the airing of it only because there was so much bad press. But I mean, it's just lunacy. So, when you say, you know, should Fauci be criticized? Sure. You know, based on facts, but based on 
just attempts to smear somebody because you don't think they make the president look good or deranged conspiracy theories from like freaks. No, I don't think that's criticism. From freaks, good use of the term. Sticking with COVID for a second. Do you think, this may seem like an odd thing to say, but it's obviously true that everyone in, in America, everyone in the world is thinking about COVID all the time. People have lost loved ones. People are otherwise uh, unemployed or harmed, both uh, physically, financially, emotionally, mentally. It is obviously the story of our lifetimes. And yet, I wonder if you think people still don't have a full grasp on how terrible it is, in part because unlike some other tragedies like 9-11, where fewer people were killed, we don't have the visuals. You don't have cameras in the hospitals and see people dying. You have the the metric on CNN and on other stations showing how many are dead. But at some point, you know, every additional thousand deaths doesn't cause people to be as disturbed as you might think they should be because these things are happening a bit tucked away. Is there, is there anything to that? Is that a silly observation? A hundred percent. No, it's, it's an observation that I've, that I agree with and I've, and I've made, which is, Look, I mean, this has to do with any with a lot of things having to do with death. It has to do with, you know, war, our coverage of war. You know, if we had if people saw real images of war more often, I don't know what the result would be. But people have these images um, shielded from them. Gun violence. If people had saw pictures after Sandy Hook of those 20 kids and six teachers and administrators slaughtered, what might the impact be? I mean, what might the impact be from a public policy and and public opinion perspective? And then it's definitely true that this story has been very challenging to tell because obviously for understandable reasons, hospitals have privacy, patients have privacy and we don't see what this means. So I can put up a picture of a victim of coronavirus, but you don't, I still don't know what it looks like if somebody is intubated, right? They're on their stomach. They have a tube shoved down their throat, their windpipe rather. They're in a medically induced coma. I mean, I don't know what that looks like. And it's, this has been going on now since February or March. So yeah, I do think. I mean, and, it, and you're right. Like, I mean, what's that old? I think it was like Stalin or somebody said something like, I'm going to completely botch this quote, but it's something like five deaths is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic, something like that. The idea that the bigger the number gets, the less able we are to comprehend what that even means. Can we talk a minute about how some politicians are not just dealing with the crisis, but how they're talking about their own performances, putting Trump aside for a moment. You've taken some issue with the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, sort of doing, I don't know if this is the phrase you use, but sort of taking a victory lap. And you pointed out, well, you know what? 32,000 plus New Yorkers died more than any other area state in the country. Maybe it's a bit early for them. It's not even close. They Look, the facts are what they are. And I'm really glad that New York has been able to flatten the curve. And I'm really glad that they've gotten their positivity rate down. And I'm really great that they were able to make improvements. And I know that Governor Cuomo is popular in New York. And I also know that this is an incredible challenge. 
uh, especially in a city like New York City that is so compressed, so many people on top of each other, people traveling on the subway, et cetera. But that said, there was a 24-hour period where he was like, he somebody designed a poster with all these little inside jokes about his daughters and the boyfriend and this and that. And he went on Fallon and Fallon asked him about his dating life and this and that. I, I know you've definitely probably heard of this, but you are uh, well-liked among the ladies, uh, people knowing that you're single and they think you're good looking in there. Some people are calling themselves homosexuals. They are obsessed with you and want to date you and want to marry you. Um, does, is that is that changing the way you act at all? Or, or are your kids rubbing it in your face? Or what are they doing? Uh, no. I enjoy using it selectively with certain <laughs> friends and family, actually. Uh, and those people who are saying good things, it's only because they don't know me, Jimmy. When they get to know me, they have a much different opinion. <laughs> no, it's not true. And yeah, I found it a little, and forget what I thought, a bunch of New Yorker friends of mine thought it was really inappropriate because New York has, to this day, the highest by far death rate of any state in the country. I mean, it's, it's growing, unfortunately, all over, but it's still not even close. I mean, Florida and Arizona and California are still not even close. And there have been studies and reports about what would have happened if de Blasio and Cuomo acted sooner, even just one week sooner. What would have happened? You know, there have been investigations by The New Yorker and the New York Times, famous conservative publications like the New Yorker and the New York Times, about how Cuomo and de Blasio messed up a lot of uh, stuff. And the questions about whether or not the order that nursing homes take in people, even if they have COVID, whether that uh, costs lives or not. And all I was saying was, look, there's no time. This is not a, a good time for a victory lap. I mean, and yeah, I know it rubbed a lot of people wrong especially Democrats, especially New York Democrats. But uh, it's a time for humility. And I don't know. I just, I don't think there's any, any, anything jokey about it. Like, ha ha, here's my, here's this poster. I mean, what? I, I mean, anyway, so. I'm in agreement with you. And I think, you know, we, we had a lot of positive discussion in the country about how California was doing and a lot of praise going to Gavin Newsom. That has not worked out so well. Uh, you had the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, asking where he's going to get his apology because he did things his own way and there was not a spike. That was delayed a little bit. And so, as you say, humility in the face of not knowing what this is going to look like, not knowing what the second wave will look like if there's going to be one, people should just keep their fingers crossed and pray and do what they're supposed to be doing and not crow about anything at this moment. So I, I agree with you. I mean, can you imagine if you had lost loved ones in New York and you were thinking to yourself, like if they, and then you pick up the times and there's a study saying if de Blasio and Cuomo had just not had as much infighting and if they had just shut everything down a week earlier, 17,000 lives would have been saved. And imagine if it's like one of the, one of those lives was somebody you loved and maybe like a marginal, like not, you know, not somebody super old or super unhealthy or, you know, somebody with a lot of what they call comorbidities, but maybe somebody who was just one of those really unlucky, you know, 40-year-olds who was healthy or somebody who had like a seven-year-old. I mean, it would just crush me. And that's one of the things that I think I'm here to do. My job is to speak for those people or speak for the family of the three Marines who were killed in 2019 and just be like, 
this is we're supposed to be taking this stuff seriously. And look, I make mistakes and I screw up and sometimes people don't like me and sometimes people don't like what I say. But I do think this job is important. And, you know, if we don't do anything with this platform, if it's just about making friends and then then we're squandering it, I think. Can I ask you a couple of questions about interview technique? You said something that I thought was interesting once. You said the tougher the question, the more calm the delivery should be. A, why is that? And B, is there ever a time when the delivery should not be calm? Yeah, I mean, I mean that mainly um, in the situation of where you're challenging, especially a president, but somebody in power who's not used to be challenged. And also like in the White House press room for when I was a White House correspondent, Uh, because I think that one of the lessons I learned in the early years of the of covering Obama was the louder I was, the more distracting it was to the substance of what I was trying to ask about. and, And the more I was coming across as though I was a pompous ass as opposed to uh, an earnest journalist trying to ask a question to legitimately find out an answer, which is how I feel, even if sometimes I came across the other way. And so sometimes, like, for instance, if you watch the last time I got to interview President Trump, which was 2016, and perhaps the last time I'll ever get to interview him, uh, which is when I asked him about Judge Curiel, and I basically said, if you're challenging Judge Curiel because of his race, is that not the definition of racism? That was delivered pretty much. It took me a long way to get there because he kept interrupting and trying to steamroll. But and you asked it again and again and again, which actually I think is a pretty good technique. But I had to, I had, yeah, I had to keep going back. But my tone, as I recall, was fairly calm because the accusation I was, because what I was building up to is like, aren't you being racist? Isn't this exactly what racism is? Which, of course, it is. But you're invoking his race when talking about whether or not he can do his job. Jack, I'm building a wall, okay? I'm building a wall. I'm trying to keep business out of Mexico. Mexico's fine. There's nothing... But he's American. He's an American. uh, He's a Mexican heritage, and he's very proud of it, as I am where I come from. But he's an American. You keep talking about... Jake. It's a conflict of interest because of Mexico. And even the Republican Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, at the time said that. It's the dictionary definition of racism, which it is. But I mean, I thought the fact that I was asking him calmly and not like yelling at him, which, by the way, would be perfectly understandable if somebody was upset about the president or the, the then Republican presidential nominee being racist. It's perfectly understandable why somebody would be emotional and ask the question loudly. But I thought it was more effective just to say it quietly, because then it's about the words and it's about the tone and the sub, no, it's about the substance and not the tone. That's generally what I mean. Sometimes you have to interrupt, especially if it's a satellite interview especially if somebody is, you know, gaslighting or changing the subject or this and that. And that's different. But I think with very powerful people uh, and very incendiary subjects, the less focus on the, the interviewer and, and more on the question, the better. Is there a certain kind of guest that you have on and then realize you're never going to have them on, then you're never going to have them on again because they've, they're not good or because they're not truthful or some other reason? Yeah, I mean, I don't I'm not going to give you a list because, you know, you can always change your mind and who knows what. But, yeah, I mean, first of all, some people are just bad interviews. Second of all, you know, I see people out there who are just lying. I mean, public officials who are just lying, just blatantly lying. Anybody who thinks that parents are concerned about schools opening for any reason other than health reasons 
anybody who thinks that 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 you know that the people are just scheming to keep clo- schools closed because they want to hurt President Trump as opposed to we are worried about kids' lives and we're worried about the fact that if you look at, for instance, Israel, when they reopen schools, the virus spread all over again. It just drives me nuts. And there are smart people out there leveling such accusations. And I find it so irresponsible that it makes me think about whether or not it's worth giving such a person any airtime at all. Can we talk for a minute about the literary output from the Tapper family. <laughs> so we've talked we've talked about The Outpost and you wrote another book some years ago. But I, and I will say, as a matter of professional jealousy, I don't know where you found the time to do it. But you also wrote a novel called The Hellfire Club. I did. They're making it into a TV show now on HBO Max. Oh, you, oh, you, oh, you couldn't get the big the big screen for this one? Okay. <laughs> it's better as a series. <laughs> uh, HBO, Mark Smith, who co-wrote That's The some spin. Okay. Uh, Mark Smith, who co-wrote The Revenant, is turning it into a TV show. I just saw a copy of the pilot. It's awesome. He did a really good. But are, job. They, are they are they able to go into production, or that has to be delayed? Uh, we're not. We're we're not. Yeah, we're not anywhere near that. I think uh, after the pilot, then uh, if they like it, then they'll order more scripts or whatever. But no, I, I mean, I think Hollywood is still shut down pretty much. What was more fun, and what was more difficult to write the the last nonfiction book or the novel? Well, the novel's fun to write. I mean, you know, it's fun and you get to have the characters do whatever you want them to do and you get to control them in a way that you can't do with nonfiction. Uh, so it was a lot more fun. Um, and also, you know, my previous nonfiction experience writing The Outpost about Afghanistan was emotionally grueling, uh, not to mention, and you know, I interviewed more than 200 people and all that. Went to Afghanistan twice, interviewed insurgents, interviewed grieving widows and metal winners who have survivor's guilt and all the rest. So it's not even close. I mean, The Outpost is a much more important uh, book. It's it's the journalistic accomplishment of which I'm proudest, but it was exhausting, emotionally uh, and psychologically exhausting to write. There's another member of your family that came out with a book. You want to tell us about that? Well, my daughter, Alice, who's now 12, but when she was something like nine or 10, she noticed that something was happening in her school where girls, in her class, where girls were not raising their hand as much and boys were raising their hand much more. And boys didn't feel like, I mean, boys just raised their hand even if they had no idea what the answer was. Where girls, she talked about it with her Girl Scout troop. And, you know, they felt like they had to be 100% before they would really make sure that they knew the answer before they raised their hand. And she talked about it with my wife uh, and she talked about it with the Girl Scout troop. And she then talked about it with the head of the local Girl Scouts. And they came up with a patch called a raise your hand patch. Uh, in which girls um, commit to raising their hand in class more and get three friends to do so, three other girls. And I was so proud of her when the patch came out. I tweeted about it. And Barry Weiss, uh, then at the New York Times op-ed page, saw that and asked if Alice would work with her on an op-ed about the importance of girls raising their hands. So she did. And then Penguin Books saw that and asked if Alice would work with them on writing a book. So she did that too. And so she has a book called Raise Your Hand. And it came out and I guess it came out last, like 2000, early 2019. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's fun. And we're really proud of her. I saw you guys go on tour together. That <laughs> must have been fun. And was that a <laughs> well, we experience? went on Ellen. Yeah, we went on Ellen. That was fun. And so you just noticed that girls weren't raising their hand in class and said that there's something wrong with that. Yeah, I noticed that, well, I wasn't being as confident myself. And I noticed that one day when I w- kind of knew the answer to a question, the teacher asked me um, that I 
all the boys were raising their hands and uh, and all the girls were kind of like just sitting like quietly and you said yeah. that I got to do something and you're 11, right? Yes, I'm yeah. 11 years old. Talked about it with a with a mom. Yeah. We went on a uh, she did the Today show. I was not part of, I, I was not invited to that one. And then we did a CNN uh, with uh, Allison and, and John Berman, New Day. And, uh, and but the, the coolest thing, can I tell you, was she then did a book reading at Politics and Prose, the independent bookstore here in D.C., um, when she was on her book tour, March 2019. And we walk into the children's section and there's all these little girls, all these six, seven, <laughs> eight year old girls. So excited to see Alice, who at the time was 10, about to turn 11. Uh, or 11, about to turn 12, rather. And and uh, it was just so cool because she was inspiring these. I mean, she's a little girl, you know, in my mind. And she's inspiring all these littler girls. And so that was that was one of the that was maybe the best moment of 2019 for me. I mean, it was just so great. That's something else. How's your how's how's her brother handling all of this? Oh, he's fine. He's got his own thing. He <laughs> but you said it in a particular way. Oh, he's fine. <laughs> well, I mean, we we were worried. Like, what's he going to be like? But he was. He's just. He's just his own kid, Jack. My my uh, my ten year old. He's just. He's his own. You know, he wants to be a policeman, and he's into video games, and he's got his bros, and he's proud of his sister. And there isn't really. There's sibling rivalry, but there isn't jealousy. I mean, they annoy each other and fighting all that stupid stuff that you do with your brother or sister, but they're, they're pretty supportive of each other. So it's cool. Jake Tapper. Thanks again for being on the show. It was a real, it was a real delight. Oh, it was so much fun. Thanks, Bree. My conversation with Jake Tapper continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. Insiders get bonus stay tuned content, the exclusive weekly podcast I co-host with Ann Milgram, the United Security Podcast, co-hosted by Lisa Monaco and Ken Weinstein, recordings of weekly notes by Ellie Honig and me, and more. To get a two-week trial for free, head to cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. So I want to end the show by telling you about a family project that I have been working on. So here we are at the end of July, the summer is still sweltering, but we're about to head into an election season. I guess we've been in the election season for a little while. The two parties are going to have their conventions. And then I think for the first time, it is really true what gets said in every election cycle, that this is the most important election of our lifetimes. And you've heard me talk a lot about what I think should happen. It's no secret. But the election is not only important at the presidential level, it's also important at the congressional level, in the House and in the Senate and in the various states. And it's something that I think everyone should be focusing on and should be caring about and should be registering to vote, whatever your point of view is. And so the combination of being in the pandemic and being on home confinement and my two boys, 15 and 17, not having camp to go to and not having a whole lot of other stuff to, to occupy them, we decided we engage in a sort of family political enterprise. These are the boys I've mentioned before, my two sons who do extemporaneous speaking and competition at high schools who pay a lot of attention to the news, maybe because of their parents, and are very versed in public affairs and politics and international relations as well. So we came up with this project. They have been spending some time focusing on 31 battleground house races around the country. They believe, as I do, and maybe I've indoctrinated them, sorry, that the House should remain in Democratic hands so that various things can be accomplished in the next administration. 
And so they focused on 31 battleground house races to bring to my attention. And I told them if they do that, that every day in August, beginning this Saturday, August 1st, I will highlight one of those races and highlight one of the candidates in those races based on their recommendations, which they vetted very carefully, I believe. Every day I will make a $500 donation to the candidate that they have suggested. I will tweet that I have done that. And I'll suggest other people to donate what they can, or at least follow the candidate, learn more about the candidate, and do whatever they think is right. And at the same time, we're going to be focusing on other ways we can promote voter registration, voter participation, mail-in voting, and then maybe in September we'll focus a little bit more on the Senate and the presidential race. But for now, if you don't like the recommendations made by my boys, blame them, not me. Some of you who know that I have a 19-year-old daughter may be wondering, well, why is she not involved in this project? And that's because she is very industrious and is simultaneously doing two internships, including working directly on a political campaign. So she's busy. And by the way, if you're listening to this and you think there's a particular candidate that my boy should be focusing on and should be promoting, tweet it at me and I promise I'll share the tweets with my sons. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Jake Tapper. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior audio producer is David Tatashore. And the CAFE team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staten, Calvin Lord, Noah Azulai, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.